News Power Hour. Indeed, you are with us uh, this Wednesday evening, the 8th of September. I'm Alec Hogg and with me in studio, Stuart Lohman in uh, Cape Town on our virtual studio, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts. Well, Stu, uh, let's kick off with what our community are reading on biznews.com today. Thanks, Alec. Most popular is a piece by Dr. B.C. Benfield uh, on the overtaxed burden of South Africans and he looks at the African continent as a whole and how uh, South Africans stand out on on this nature. I know we Nimala spoke about it a lot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Doctor B C. Doctor B C is actually Brian Benfield. Brian Benfield used to be the chief executive of AA Life for many years. He was appointed as a 33 year old, so he's uh, he, he achieved a lot early. Then he went on to be an economics professor at WITS, and he's now retired. He's independent. He can say what he likes, and my goodness, it's a great piece. Wow. That's fascinating. And our colleague Linda van Tilburg is looking to chat with Solidarity about this similar issue tomorrow for us. So that should be interesting. And I'll talk to Magnus about this as well later (laughs) in the program because Magnus is sure to have his own views. Uh, For sure. Uh, Behind that, it's a piece we did on the interview. We've also got on the show tonight, Alec, with the NIASA's uh, Gerard Poppenfuss and Yaku Swart on the mandatory vaccines and uh, sort of in – in, in not a testament, but against with uh, Adrian Gore's uh, take on that. And then behind that, Pit Fulun's interview from last night on Tacky Town is also very popular on the dot-com site. And on YouTube, Nadia? Same themes, Alex. So the top video is the live stream of the interview with uh, Pit Fulun, in which he says that Tacky Town owners were greedy. They should have taken cash instead of Steinhoff shares. And then also the Niasa interview, where they discuss mandatory vaccination and their stance on it. And then the third video is the flash briefing from yesterday, which covered Zimbabwe's ordering uh, their state employees to get vaccinated or resign and the accusation that the IEC was biased. Bernard Mostert is in court tomorrow for the liquidation of Steinhoff. But because of all the controversy that Pitfulian caused with calling them greedy, uh, they've agreed. Bernard has agreed to do a... Uh, a debate with Pitt at one o'clock tomorrow. So anybody who's near the Business TV YouTube channel, come in, tune in, subscribe first, and then tune in tomorrow. We'll let you know when it's on. It should be lots of fun. Uh, and uh, Stu, uh, as far as the podcasts are concerned? Um, similar themes again, Alec, Niasa interview in first place, uh, Pitt fully in behind that, and then last night's Business Power Hour uh, filling up the top three. Talking about the Power Hour tonight, I mentioned earlier, we've got Magnus Haystack. Uh, ahead of that, we'll be hearing from our partners in London at the Financial Times. They've got some really good stuff and relevant stuff to South Africa in uh, the program that you'll hear in, well, the segment you'll hear in a moment. Uh, Gerard Parfenfuss, that interview, uh, the highlights will be on the program later. Remember, you can get the full interviews by going onto Business Radio, both on Spotify and on iTunes. And then, Justin, uh, you had a chat earlier uh, on the whole the cryptocurrency story. Yes, Alec. El Salvador is the first country they're making history adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. It will become the national currency. This is against warning from the IMF, who have said that the currency is too volatile as a medium of exchange. But the Purple Group's um, Vice President of Finance, Rob Graham, goes into the implementation and the challenges that El Salvador will face in the coming months. So we'll have that interview later. And then Olga Konstantantos, uh, who is with Future Growth, uh, runs the rules through exactly what David Masondo, the Deputy Finance Minister, meant or thought he meant or tried to mean when he said that South Africa needs about 150 billion rands debt forgiveness so that Eskom can go into green energy. Well, it's, uh, that's also a pre-recorded interview and it's fascinating. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. That's your cue, Nadia. What's been going on in the news headlines today? Talks are underway with Johnson & Johnson about running a booster trial in South Africa after the company's COVID-19 vaccine was used in a mass trial of almost half a million health workers in the country. The trial would include participants from that study known as Sisonke and could possibly start in October, according to Glenda Gray, who is co-lead of the mass trial. 
It would add to a booster study in the country using immunity bios shot that has already started. A number of the world's richest countries have started giving some of their citizens additional shots with the aim of bolstering the immune response against the virus several months after their initial inoculation as the number of antibodies may wane. David Masondo, South Africa's Deputy Finance Minister, suggested that investors forgive about 146 billion rand of sovereign debt in exchange for the national power utility meeting climate targets. In order to transition from the use of coal to generate electricity to renewable energy, ESCOM Holdings will need to borrow about 400 billion rand equal to its current debt and will need a complementary transaction to achieve that, he said in a speech on Tuesday. Under Masondo's proposal, which he termed a debt for climate swap, a portion of national debt, which he suggested could be 146 billion rand, would be forgiven by new or existing creditors. And the ANC says it will resort to tried and true campaigning methods, given that it cannot afford to splash out for the coming elections. The party said it would rely on volunteers and the council candidates to go door-to-door in communities across the country. There will be no rallies, however, due to COVID-19 restrictions on gatherings. The ANC is broke and has been unable to pay salaries and benefits. Election polls show the party has lost support, dropping below 50% in the latest Ipsos survey. The DA is also low at 17.9%, while the EFF is up to 14.5%. Interesting numbers, those. It'll be intriguing to see how the election actually goes. But uh, every day we have action on the markets. Justin Rowe Roberts, what went on on this Wednesday? The JSE All Share Index was lower at 65,900. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 27 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 65 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 87 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,797 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 27,000 rand. Brent crude is up at $73 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin is sharply lower at 660,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, Bitcoin nursed losses on Wednesday after plunging amid El Salvador's troubled rollout of the largest cryptocurrency as a legal tender. The virtual coin was trading near $46,000, having slid as much as 17% before pairing some of the losses. The downdraft also swept across tokens such as Ethereum and Dogecoin, as well as the Bloomberg Galaxy, Galaxy Crypto Index. Thanks, Justin. <laughs> Dogecoin, I suppose. <laughs> and you say it so seriously. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, September 8th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Pfizer's top scientist is defending the company's COVID-19 vaccine. And a member of the Federal Reserve doesn't see any reason why the U.S. Central Bank should change its asset taper timeline. Plus, Xi Jinping is extending the Chinese Communist Party's dominance over civil society, and it feels pretty Maoist. He is a true believer in the necessity of party control and, and his control over the party. We'll take a look at the future of China under President Xi. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The pharmaceutical company Pfizer has come under attack lately over its COVID-19 vaccine. Some scientists and global health officials have criticized Pfizer for urging governments to adopt vaccine booster programs. But Pfizer's Philip Dormitzer defended booster shots when he spoke to the FT recently. Dormitzer is Pfizer's chief scientific officer, and he said there was good reason to be proactive when it came to booster shots. He said if Pfizer waited until there were just widespread breakthroughs of severe disease, the company would be way too late. The U.S. is preparing to roll out booster shots later this month. American COVID hospitalizations and deaths have been rising because of the Delta variant of coronavirus, especially in areas with low vaccination rates. There was an abrupt slowdown in U.S. jobs growth in August. 235,000 jobs were created last month, but that's down after back-to-back months of roughly 1 million new jobs in both June and July. But this news isn't rattling the St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, especially when it comes to the U.S. Central Bank's timeline for tapering its asset purchases. Bullard spoke to the FT's Colby Smith yesterday, and she joins me now. Colby, why wasn't Bullard deterred by the most recent U.S. jobs report? 
I think for him, he uh, saw it as yet another sign that the labor market recovery is continuing. We are still seeing job gains, even though it's at a slightly slower pace than, than what we've seen in the previous two months. And something that he reiterated to me was that, you know, it's better instead of looking month to month, it's better to look at job gains in the aggregate. So for him, he said he's he's really interested in seeing job gains that average out to around 500,000 a month this year. And that's roughly the current pace that we're at, even once you factor in August's uh, slow report. Now, Kobe, do you expect any other Fed presidents to push for asset purchases to continue at the same pace instead of quickening the pace? It'll be interesting to see how other Fed officials approach the most recent jobs data. A lot of them had said that they needed to see, you know, a string of very strong um, job gains over, you know, the current period in order to set themselves up uh, to be comfortable with the Fed pulling back on that support. So the August number does, in a lot of ways, you know, put off maybe an earlier taper timeline. So it'll be interesting to see over the coming days, and, and we'll, we'll hear from a lot of different Fed officials about how they are thinking about the outlook. And one in particular, uh, later today, we'll hear from New York President um, John Williams. And he's, you know, slightly on the more dovish side of the Fed, has long kind of advocated for a more patient approach when thinking about reducing the Fed's support. And it'll be interesting to hear from him in particular. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Is China entering a new political era? The Communist Party under President Xi Jinping is taking a more domineering role in society. And it's caused some to compare today's China with the Maoist political campaigns of the 1960s. Today's Beijing has cracked down on China's biggest technology companies. It's limited the amount of time kids and teenagers can play video games, and it declared it necessary to regulate excessively high incomes in order to ensure, quote, common prosperity for all. Tom Mitchell is the FT's Beijing bureau chief, and he joins me now to discuss this. Tom, tell us about Xi's economic goals. Well, he definitely wants to keep China on its rising trajectory. He wants it to be a strong first rank economic power, best in the world and research and development uh, equivalent, if not better than the capabilities of the U.S. and Western Europe. However, one of the things they do not admire about the U.S. in particular is the degree to which they believe special interest groups uh, dominate politics and reinforce social inequality. And she in particular is determined to avoid that, of course, not at the expense of the one very dominant vested interest in China, which is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party. So, Tom, what's President Xi doing to close the wealth gap in China? Well, ironically, he hasn't done very much. And I think that explains why you've had such a high volume offensive in terms of multiple policy initiatives to enforce what is referred to by Xi and others as uh, common prosperity. The problem is, if you really want to redress social inequity in China, which is far greater than what currently exists in the U.S., you have to do very difficult things. You know, you're just not going to get that big a result from going after a few or even many high-profile taxpayers who may have cheated here or there. You're, it's even difficult to achieve what he wants to achieve uh, through tax reform alone. So there are huge structural issues, which, to be honest, the party under Xi has not even really tried to address. Now, Tom, we've seen some intimidating moves by Beijing that reminds some people of the Mao Zedong era. Um, recently, some popular media stars were denounced or, you know, even removed from the public's eye. How far do you think this will go? And could it eventually stifle the creativity that's in the private sector? Well, some of the things we've seen with regards to criticism of entertainers and their presence being wiped off the internet, things like that, are not hugely unusual. It's, it's happened before. There have been tax crackdowns before. Um, I think the most interesting thing is that we have yet to see any high-profile arrests or detentions of business figures, private sector business figures. If something like that were to happen, then that would 
be a huge development and represent a, a potential real shift in Chinese society. Just the other day, Liu He, who's you know, arguably the second most powerful man in China, he's Xi's long-term economic and financial advisor. He was out trying to reassure a forum that the government's support of the private sector has not and will not change. But when someone like Liu He has to go out and say, hey, there's no problem here, we still support you, you know that there's a problem. So I guess bottom line, Tom, do you think there's a real shift in China? I think what's changed is the momentum. Previously, you had a lot of policies like this where the result was a continuing squeeze on various interest groups, on various industries. It was kind of a slow and steady pressure building. And I think that is something that's been going on for two, three years. But what we've really had over the past year and really even over the past month is a sudden acceleration in this. It's as if she's gone from squeezing these interest groups he wants to get under control to just hammering them with punch after punch after punch. And that's kind of what Chinese civil society and private sector businessmen and even officials themselves who are, you know, worried about the direction this is going, you know, they just kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed at the moment. The question is, will that pace continue or have they gone too far and do they need to lighten up a bit? Tom Mitchell is the FT's Beijing bureau chief. Well, it's good uh, to be talking with Magnus Haystick uh, back home, both of us, after the Biz News Investment Conference last week. Magnus, your uh, presentation was very well received by everybody in the audience where you, you tracked the facts about investing offshore. But I guess we wouldn't have expected anything different from you, given that this is a drum you've been beating for the last 10 years. What what would it take to perhaps change your mind or could would you ever change your mind uh, in this respect, i.e. that uh, given South Africa is a tiny part of the global economy, we should be diversifying our assets around the world? Yes, good afternoon, Alec. My, my views have been from, from uh, the last 11 years have been based on facts and the analysis and extrapolation of those facts as best one can into the future. And uh, as I said at the talk, it wasn't a political view. It was uh, it was based on, a firstly, the commodity cycle taking one terrible dive and it dragged South Africa down with it. And over time, 50, 60, 70 years, that has always been a very good indicator as to what will follow for South Africa and the stock market. And, and initially, the first five years, that's exactly what happened. The RAND weakened. Our uh, resources stocks got pummeled. Our economic growth was pulled down. The second part of the 10-year period, if I can call it that, had more to do with the political developments, the state capture, corruption, and everything else that we uh, speak about on a daily basis. And surprisingly, over the second period of time, 2015 to, to now, the RAND has been fairly stable despite being volatile. It's exactly where it is five years ago, yet the offshore markets have done incredibly better. Uh, and that is fairly ominous if the RAND starts weakening. But to answer your question, and a couple of people asked me, would you advise bringing money back to South Africa? And under what conditions? And it's a very valid question. And it's one that I look out for uh, as, as best I can. First of all, it's got to be a signal from government that it is turning around on its um, trajectory towards more state intervention, more regulation, more social socialism, and more redistribution. And you need a signal somewhere along the line that the ANC admits, this is the wrong way, we need to change that. So that's what one must need to look out for. Secondly, if the commodity cycle really does start turning around, one can really recommend some uh, commodity stocks in South Africa, and thirdly, if one can have a look at an improvement in law and order, and as I said at the, at the, in the during our debate, the application of of the rule of law, which is which is which is very important. And lastly, if the foreigners start buying our stocks again, you cannot discount the fact 
that the foreigners have been fleeing our, our, our stock market for a very long time. But if they start buying, you'll immediately see an improvement in the mood. You'll see the markets lift. The rand probably will strengthen, but I don't see it yet. You're waiting for a heartbeat of a semi-comatose patient, and that hasn't happened. But it can happen. And if it happens, I'll be the first one to say, yes, now's the time to bet on SA Inc. But I don't see it yet. And I disagree with many of the large asset managers who keep on saying SA is so cheap, and now's the time to buy. I just don't see it. And the market is not seeing it. I mean, our market is now down 5 6% from its peak three, four months ago. Uh, the commodities have gone a little bit flat. But if the, if, if the signals are there, Alec, I will definitely change my recommendation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess as the facts change, uh, then you change your mind, as Churchill famously said. But in your presentation as well, and I don't want to go through the whole thing because it will be on YouTube very soon, but you, you outlined how uh, there has been quite a lot of attacking of your views of your person and people getting pretty personal about that why do you feel so confident that the way you approach things going public with uh, your perspectives is the right way to do it you know in South Africa we seem to have this uh, idea about let's talk about things outside of the of the public spotlight and then we'll get to change each other's minds in that way especially in the political sense that happens but but you've taken a very direct approach it wasn't meant to be directly it was as a result of a platform that that I had you gave me a platform on moneyweb on eros here many many years ago and when people ask me questions, I would answer them. And not I didn't mean to be provocative or disagreeing with the mainstream. I gave an honest answer based on what I saw in front of me, which was blown out by other people then coming back and saying, you know, he's an idiot, he doesn't know what he's talking about, etc. And you realize that there's a massive amount of vested interest out there that needs protection. And that has just escalated over time. You had columnists having a go at me and magazines calling me Dr. Doom. And I say, that's fine. You can call me what you like, but give me facts that disprove what I have been saying. And they've never been forthcoming. Or if they did, very selective periods. But if you look at the 10-year picture, seven years, five years, three years, the local market has underperformed substantially I'm just calling out these facts. It tended to escalate by itself. Didn't mean to be controversial. I was just giving my viewpoint. And it was amazing that people got so you know, upset about it, that I'm being disloyal and unpatriotic about South Africa. And I pointed out that most of the stocks on the JSC that have given you growth are offshore stocks. Most of the large fund managers are foreign-owned entities or owned by foreign investors. So... I don't understand that argument. So, you know, and, 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 and lastly, I just thought that the public was being given a, a bad, bad advice uh, as a result of those vested interests. What's happened to your business over those 10 years? Because I guess if you're going to be telling the truth, sometimes your business can be damaged by that. You know, at first, as I said at the conference, we had difficulty convincing people to externalize some of the assets and take some money offshore. And, and and in the last five years, for the first five years, it was kind of it was a neutral approach towards our business. The last five years, our business has doubled and doubled again because people have seen what we've been saying has proven to be right. And they've compared their returns with, let's say, their local investor investments. And the, and the difference is so vast, they, they were now all bought into the into the story, but we do tell them. We do tell them sometimes people are not suited for offshore investments because there is risks attached. And more importantly, with the currency that's so volatile, it enhances the volatility of your offshore returns. And that is a problem for some people. And for some people, we straight out say, you don't belong in the offshore space, stick in the local space and, and be done with it. But uh, so it's not a hundred percent at all cost. Uh, that's definitely not the case. You'll remember Brian Benfield, I'm sure. He, at 33, he was the CEO of AA Life, which was a very significant life assurer back then. I do. I do. 
He went on to Wits, where he was professor of economics. He's uh, at some point was the chairman of the Free Market Foundation. He's written a piece, which is on Biz News today, showing the taxation of South Africa to be substantially higher than other parts of the continent of, of Africa. It just seems the bad news keeps on coming because if the taxes are going to be, if you're going to be excessively taxed in South Africa, uh, then there's not a heck of a lot left for the private sector to be able to grow the economy. Tongue in cheek, I've been saying for many years that our largest export commodity has not been coal, gold or chrome. It's been taxpayers. We've been exporting our taxpayers for years now and also the children of our taxpayers. So that's where there's a vacuum developing now in the sense that just, there's just no taxpayers coming through. And to have almost our entire personal income tax system based on 500,000 taxpayers is a, an extremely onerous position to be in. And it's a very, very uh, shaky foundation to build our economy. And if the government doesn't address that, and they can try and spend more, and but they can't increase the taxes because people will take their money and flee. They will not reinvest into this country. And that is one of our biggest problems in the country is our small tax base with this massive uh, dependency base of 20 million plus. And if that tax base goes, uh, and I read that piece, it's a brilliant piece. He summarizes it very accurately, very unemotionally, but the facts are the facts. And if they try and tax the tax base even more, we will see 10, 20, 30, maybe 50,000 high net worth individuals in this new modern world simply pack up and leave and, and set their base somewhere else. But a worrying factor about this is it takes somebody like Brian Benfield, who's who's left the business scene, has been in academia for a long time, to actually stand up and, and say something which is pretty obvious and pretty basic. And you would imagine that the business community in South Africa would be waving a similar flag, but we don't hear it much from those who are actively involved in corporations. This This old sickness may be in South Africa of just don't criticize the government because they'll punish you. Which is 100% accurate. I mean, Rob Hirsov, your, your, your brilliant speaker at your conference, basically called the business people or the top guys cowards. They don't want to impact or, or say anything that would affect their business or their, their ties with government. Government is very powerful. And, and quite rightly, yes, Benfield, they can't touch him. We have a situation, in my view, that many, many of the commentators in the media, the embedded economists slash analysts who work for the banks, asset management companies, dare not criticize government. It'll be a career-ending move. And it's not only on economic policies or, or, or tax or the Regulation 28 of the Pensions uh, Fund. You cannot attack it. It's a career-ending move. Don't, don't go and disturb that wonderful, cozy uh, a relationship between big business and, and government. And the, the man in the street is paying the price because they still tend to believe these articles and commentators who um, either work for government or have massive contracts with government. So that's where you know, independent voices like yourselves are vitally important, that people can hear the other side. They can make up their own minds, but they have to hear the other side as well. And an independent voice like Magnus Haystick. But one of the areas that is really uh, fixating South African citizens is the whole pandemic, the, the the whole COVID story and the way that it's being handled and whether or not uh, the decisions, especially in the most recent ones, have been good. I know you don't, you don't hold back on most subjects. Is this one that uh, you've got an opinion on? Look, I've been vaccinated and I've, I've recommended people vaccinate because I don't know more on a, about medical stuff than the doctors and the specialists. But I think that some of the regulations and commentary coming from the, the medical bureaucrats, as they call them, have been way over the top. And some of the regulations introduced by government in terms of curfews and, 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 and ban on liquor sales and the ban of open-toe shoes, etc., have been absolutely crazy. They make no difference. And they seem to punish certain sectors of business or certain sections of the community that they dare not mingle. They dare not have more than 50 people in a room. 
and the next day you have a political demonstration where thousands of people are present or a rugby game. I mean, it's just bizarre, the application of some of those rules. And, and that hasn't made sense in, in many ways. But I have been vaccinated and I, I recommend to people get vaccinated. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Well, there's lots of discussion going on at the moment in South Africa about mandatory vaccines. Adrian Gore, uh, very famously at Discovery, said that they are making vaccinations mandatory for all 10,000 of their staff. Internationally, uh, companies like Goldman Sachs have done the same thing. Delta Airlines is doing something different. If you work for that uh, airline company and you don't get vaccinated, then they're going to charge you $200 a month as a fine. So there, there's a quite a lot of pressure coming from corporates to get employees to get vaccinated. On the other hand, while the deaths from vaccinations have been very rare, there still have been hundreds, if not thousands of them around the world. So not everybody is terribly excited about being forced to be vaccinated. A, a, a fascinating article was sent out to NIASA members by Gerard Papenfuss and his colleague Jaco Swart, both from NIASA. Maybe, Gerard, we can start with you. Why did you decide to, to tackle this very controversial subject? Uh, well, you know, that's the second time we communicate uh, on this issue, uh, and we've also made our position very clear previously. I think this is uh, very relevant. Uh, we can no longer remain quiet on this And uh, I just want to emphasize this debate is not uh, about whether vaccine is a good or a bad thing. Uh, I mean, that's an entirely different debate, and we don't want to go into that debate. We're simply not equipped to do that. For us, it is a – we we all have our opinions and views. There are two sides of the story. But now, at this stage, it's about uh, the – the exercising of the individual's freedom of choice. And uh, uh, we want to alert those associated with us. And even beyond that, that this is our opinion that that right needs to be respected. Um, So, you know, we had to come out and say this is our position. Um, This is a very divisive issue. And I think if this is not going to be treated properly, then uh, this might tear this country apart, tear businesses apart, uh, and tear the country apart. I mean, we are really divided into two camps on this issue, and uh, the the, the sooner we take this out of the debate, the better. Uh, Being anti, uh, you can can be a uh, pro-vaccinator and still uh, respect somebody else who doesn't want to do it, and vice versa. So uh, we think, take this out of the debate, uh, and we advise employers not to engage in this. Uh, do not go down this path. But, Jaco, uh, it's, it's a difficult thing not to go down the path because reading your article, it has already been made um, obligatory for employers to tell government whether or not they're going to make vaccinations compulsory. That, that uh, I, I had no idea this had occurred until reading the article that uh, you published saying that, in fact, something of this nature was already set out in July. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the director doesn't actually state that you have to tell government that you are going to vaccinate or not. What it says is that you need to make an election um, within 21 days from the 11th of June when it was published, um, whether you are going to vaccinate or not. And if you are going to vaccinate or not, you need to put that into your your return to work plan and your phasing plan and your safety plan for the workplace. So you have to you have to make an election. That's what it says. Um, certain certain large employers or larger employers do have the obligation to submit those plans to, to government, um, but that's not the general obligation. The obligation is to make an election whether you will vaccinate or not. So, Herod, what you said, if I read you correctly, 
is that you would say to the NIASA members who employ hundreds of thousands of people in South Africa, don't even fill in that form or don't send that form back because it's, it's not something that you should be engaging in. Yeah, that's our position. Uh, that that's that's our position. There's there's uh, you know there's a certain obligation in terms of the Health and Safety Act, uh, but I think we can an employer can get around that without dismissing eventually dismissing an employee that refuses uh, to vaccinate. This is what we say. Is this you can do it without. Uh, allowing for a person to lose his job, we we we, you, we cannot expect of of people to make a, a, a decision here whether to I a have a job or get vaccinated. That that is wrong. This is something that's never happened in the history of the world. I mean, it reminds me uh, almost like the one one uh, one child policy of the Chinese, and where you were pregnant, you were forced uh, into an abortion. I mean, this is. This is immoral. We, we cannot do that. And I mean, there are many questions around that. And if there is uncertainty, well, then just respect it. I mean, the, in the, the, the Bill of Rights made, made provision for, for religion, opinion, uh, belief. Now, you know, it, it can fall in any of those categories. And, you know, uh, people hear certain stuff and they have a view on this. And, you know, if, if, we, if we do not stand firm on this issue, we might just find ourselves in future, being faced with uh, uh, similar choices, but on different issues. And I think this is a time where we, uh, we need to stand firm, all of us as a country, that we c- cannot go down the path where we force people to make decisions. To, if you want a job, then make that decision. I say that is not a choice that we need to, must, cannot, or must not present an employee with. So what would you say if you were talking to Adrian Gore, who's taken an, a different opinion. Well, you know, then that, that brings us, you know, that, or that drags us almost into the debate or whether the vaccine is a good or a bad thing. Um, I think, and that is my view, that the, the whole thing has been exaggerated. I had COVID myself. Uh, I've been through this. Uh, and somebody would say, well, Gerard, then you don't have a problem. You have uh, sufficient natural immunity. I said, well, uh, you know, that solves my problem, but it doesn't solve others' problems. So I'm involved here. And and I say, you know, um, there are alternative way, ways to treat you yourself. Um, I've been through it. I was properly treated. I did was not in hospital. Um, and um, I read a lot about this this issue, and you know there is enough sufficient reason for me to say I'm concerned uh, about what I hear. But I mean that's not uh, that's not a clear cut issue, and I don't want to get involved in in, in that. But um, uh, I differ, of course, then <laughs> directly with Adrian Gore on enforcing your employees. Well, I think this is going to tear companies apart. That's going to break down the uh, the relationship between employees, and you know when you lo- you've lost that uh, that spirit in your business, well, you won't get it back. I say respect each person's uh, views, accommodate them. Um, that's the best you can do, and that's the best for your company. And companies that respect that and go down this path will be the companies that uh, will, be, will be victorious at the end. Uh, this is a, a temporary crisis. It's going to go away. Uh, this is not going to be with us forever. Um, um, so treat this properly. Respect other people. Accommodate people. And uh, create a spirit of tolerance in your workplace. This is the best, we, the best way we can deal with it. This is our view. Yako, just to end off with, if you were to have supported mandatory vaccinations, in other words, if NIASA came and told all its members, uh, we support that because of the, the national interest, because of hospitalization, because of the evidence that everyone should be vaccinated. And then it's not unknown of, it's rare, but still a number of people, thousands of people around the world have died after taking vaccinations. There's a very famous case at the moment of a BBC reporter uh, in in Newcastle in in England, who died as a direct consequence of blood clots, 
due to the AstraZeneca vaccine. But let's just say you had told your employers to do that, and one of their staff who was forced to take a vaccine died. What are the legal implications for the employer of that kind of a decision? Well, it's a difficult question to answer. It's uncharted territory. So the question would be, would she be able to to claim that as an injury on duty? Possibly. It's not catered for at the moment. And possibly there might be civil claims against an employer saying that you forced me to do this. You, 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 you had an option not to do it, but you forced me and you caused my death. So there might be massive civil claims against such an employer. Um, speculation at this stage, but it, it's, it, it's a definite possibility. Olga Constantos is the head of credit at Future Growth Asset Management. Lovely talking with you, Olga. On a day when many of us are a little confused, the Deputy Finance Minister has made a statement to say nearly 150 billion rand should be written off sovereign debt so that Eskom can invest in green energy. It's confusing to those of us who are not intimate with these markets. Uh, first of all, was it something that had been expected? So I think, Alec, it's confusing not just to you outside of the financial markets. It's confusing to us even in the financial markets. It's not clear, actually. In fact, when I read the article this morning, and that's the engagement that I've had, I didn't listen to the actual speech that he gave. Um, it actually raised more questions you know, than answers. Um, and so it, it's actually not, not clear what he means. It certainly is the first time that that wording of debt forgiveness or, or, or writing off of debt, I can't remember the exact phrase that he used, um, has been applied to the ESCOM debt problem, um, and and it's just not clear what you know what exactly that means. Um, you know, certainly for investors, we have invested from a future growth perspective, pension fund money into ESCOM, um, and and you know to, to speak about you know our clients effectively taking a loss on that is is obviously of, of great concern. And so I think you know before we jump to any conclusions, I think it would be important to get some clarity on what exactly you know is meant by that. Um, you know, I think. I mean, there's a few things that we can agree on. I think we can agree ESCOM's debt is unsustainable. A solution does need to be found. Um, we think that the move to greener forms of energy is a very definite necessity, you know, for our country and for the planet, frankly. Um, but, but the mechanisms of how we achieve both of those aims is, I guess, what we need a lot of clarity on. So he's throwing out a – or flying a kite, perhaps, to say, would you be prepared as investors to write off – almost 150 billion rands in debt. What, what would that mean, uh, bottom line, to people uh, whose pensions you look after? Well, if, if it was to come to pass, it would mean they would take a loss, right? So to the extent you had, I don't know, 10% of your portfolio invested in, in ESCOM debt and all of that got written off, you would, you would have less you know, ten percent less assets, so it, it's an it's it's an immediate right you know write off. It's it, it's very very concerning. I think what's not clear as well is that the bulk of ESCOM's debt is actually government guaranteed. So in the context of you know how do you how do you write off government guaranteed debt? Like it, it, it's not clear how how the mechanism. It, it's just not clear what would happen. I, I would like to think that's not what he meant. Certainly, all the discussions or certainly the public um, pronouncements, you know, on this point historically have never spoken about um, this this particular point around a right off or, or some form of debt forgiveness um, as yet. And so it is it is definitely something that's new. What has been spoken about is ESCOM accessing climate finance, ESCOM being able to get cheaper finance in return for meeting commitments that actually as a country we have made anyway in terms of lowering lowering our CO2 emissions and even maybe accelerating those. Um, but but that's really, that those discussions previously, well, not even discussions, it's really been things in the press that have been, um, floated, have been speaking about relieving some of ESCOM's debt and that going on to the sovereign's balance sheet. That's Those are the discussions that have, pre not discussions again, previously have, have um, those ideas have been floated. Not, you know, nothing really about debt, debt forgiveness. This is, this is the first time. When you say the sovereign's balance sheet, um, that means South African government itself, although ESCOM and South African government in the, for this context, because of the guarantee, are one and the same. Well, except that what the current situation is, 
that the state has guaranteed ESCOM's debt. And so that liability, the actual liability sits on ESCOM's balance sheet and the contingent liability sits on the sovereign balance sheet. So there's, a, there's contingent liabilities on the state's balance sheet. If the state were to take that on, what would, would mean is that ESCOM's debt would reduce, let's say it's 150 billion, ESCOM's debt on its balance sheet would reduce by 150 billion. And on the sovereign balance sheet, you would then crystallize effectively part of that um, um, the contingent liability would be crystallized into an actual liability. And so you'd see our debt to GDP numbers immediately go up because those are act, it's actual debt numbers that are used in that calculation, not necessarily the contingent liability. So is Masondo, who comes from outside of the Treasury and uh, outside perhaps of the financial environment, I think he was a, a, a premier, certainly he's a politician, is he uh, floating a kite to write off or for South Africa to write off 150 billion of its debt of the of the country's debt so that Eskom can then go off and do green energy is that what he might be trying to do here I, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know what the, the intention behind it is. The understanding also that we have is that ESCOM doesn't necessarily have to be the generator of green energy. What's happened historically is that ESCOM's you know, had three divisions. It's had generation, it's had distribution, and it's or transmission, and then distribution. And its generating fleet has effectively been the coal fleet, right? How we have, how we as a country have gotten more green energy is through the renewable energy program, the REAP program, and that has really been a series of independent providers that have set up wind and solar farms that then basically sell that electricity into ESCOM. So ESCOM is effectively the buyer of that electricity. ESCOM is not the generator of that green electricity. And so I guess what's not clear to to me, certainly, is whether it is envisaged that ESCOM is now going to be on its own a green energy provider, that its generation mix is going to move, which it must, away from coal. Um, But are they going to actually be the builder of new renewable energy plants, or are they going to, through REAP, um, enable private producers to set up wind and solar and CSP, whatever farms, um, and they would continue to buy the energy there. So so it, it's really around ESCOM's role into the future. Um, are they still going to be you know, the, the sole provider of, of, of um, electricity generation in this country, or are they going to look to decentralize effectively generation, um, you know, as, as a lot of big utilities throughout the world have actually done quite successfully? Well, it, it's, it brings up a couple of interesting points there. The program to bring in the private sector to do renewable energy in South Africa has been extremely successful. Certainly people around the world uh, have, have saluted us for this. But now it appears as though not only is Eskom going to enter that field, but government says we'll enter it, but you've also got to give us an advantage of $150 billion. That's the way I read it, and maybe I'm, I'm jumping to conclusions. Yeah, it's not. It certainly isn't clear, Alex. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, certainly the the REAP program has been an extraordinary success. Over two hundred billion rands worth of capital has been deployed um, across a multitude of of um, electricity generator providers. And to be quite honest, there hasn't been a single allegation even of procurement irregularity. So, I think another concern or question that would have to be answered is if ESCOM is going to be providing and generating the renewable energy capability itself. I think we would have to have a lot of clarity that, you know, we're not going to be kind of loading a Madupi and Kusile 2.0, you know, with massive cost overruns, massive procurement irregularities, and all those attendant problems, which actually is the cause of ESCOM's debt problem, right? It's the reason why ESCOM is sitting with too much debt is because of the massive overruns um, on on those two big coal-fired plants. Now, you, because of your work, uh, you will be watching Treasury very carefully, and one would presume that a statement of this type would which has now gone all over the world, given that Exum debt is held by investors uh, throughout uh, throughout the earth, uh, the statement of this type would have first gone through Treasury, and Treasury would have would have at least at least known or advised uh, the Deputy Finance Minister on this score. Does it look like this has happened in this case, given the confusion that's been created? I, I mean, I, I can't speak for what's going on or not going on, you know, at Treasury. Um, all I can say is that this certainly is, seems to be a departure from discussions um, or, or ideas that have been floated to date. Um, it is something new. Um, and and, and I, I just, I, I don't really know is the, is the honest answer. But uh, so you, you don't want to express an opinion on whether or not this looks like it, but what would you like to see in the wake of uh, what's been 
uh, quite a controversial statement. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think a lot, I think we need clarity. Like what exactly is meant? What exactly is the structure that they are talking about? Who are the role players going to be? How are they going to address you know the, the concerns that that people have around some of these very loose statements? You know, debt forgiveness. What does that mean? It can mean different things to different people. Um, and so I think you know the devil's really going to be in the detail. So we would need to unpack the detail to really fully understand what is going on. At this stage, we just don't have enough information. And so there's a series of questions, I guess, that would need to be asked and answered um, in order for us to, to figure out the way forward. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Rob Graham, Vice President of Finance at the Purple Group, the holding company for investment platform Easy Equities. Rob, an interesting topic of conversation today. El Salvador has become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as national currency. Cryptocurrencies divide opinion among some of the smartest people in finance all over the world. But Rob, how is the adoption of Bitcoin going to work in El Salvador just from a logistical and implementation perspective? Thanks, Justin. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting, you know. Generally speaking, crypto is still voluntary in most parts of the world. And for a government to make it legal tender, it essentially means that um, any merchant is legally required to accept Bitcoin for payment. So I think this is going to be quite interesting to see how that plays out, especially in the population where they're not that accustomed to using these technologies. Um, I believe you know, about 70% of the population is still unbanked. And it seems that the strategy is to kind of leapfrog um, having to, you know, build out normal payments infrastructure um, and to move the, the economy to more digital payments um, system and having, you know, just to leapfrog the existing system. So it seems like that's a strategy. And yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, it's also, you know, built on the Lightning Network of BTC, which is also still somewhat an experiment at this stage. There's not too many people using it. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how this all evolves. Rob, I think following on from those concerns you've just mentioned, regulators such as the IMF have warned El Salvador about the risks of adopting Bitcoin as national currency. I think it would be fair to say that regulation is the single biggest risk when investing in any form of cryptocurrencies. Do you think it's a matter of time before governments, central banks and international organizations normalize the use of cryptocurrency in everyday use? I think that's still quite a quite a while away. Um, I think it's you know I mean even if we just look at South Africa, we don't even have you know some of the very basic regulatory frameworks in place. Um, but it is voluntary in South Africa. Merchants are allowed to process payments in Bitcoin. Um, you've kind of you know looking at the history of Bitcoin. Um, it became very expensive to use and it kind of stopped being used for payments. And now you've got, um, you know, the Lightning Network that is supposedly going to solve this problem. Um, so we've kind of, you know, taking a couple steps forward and then a bunch backwards again. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's different elements of the crypto space that are being regulated or that need to be regulated from investments to payments. Um, obviously, in the El Salvador case, it's more um, a payments use case. Um so, yeah, I think the payments frameworks are a lot easier to kind of legislate um, and to fit into the, the current framework. But there are, there are issues that need to be resolved. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and what risks actually transpire in El Salvador. The problems that they're going to have, I believe, with the launch um, just yesterday, there's been you know, some technical issues which are expected to happen. But as they collect data on, on how people are processing transactions, how they're using it and you know, some of the issues they're having, I think they'll be able to make the adjustments that are necessary to, to really get this to work well for them. And yeah, I hope it does. And any idea or reasons behind the 17% drawdown yesterday? Logically, one would think the adoption of Bitcoin as national currency would be a net positive for the price action. Yeah, it's kind of one of those interesting things where, you know, Bitcoin actually trades very technically. And, you know, if you go look at the chart, we kind of just went into that, you know, Fibonacci resistance around the 65% zone, which is something pretty much every trader in the world looks at. So wasn't really much of a surprise that there was, you know, massive resistance there, especially from the pump up from, you know, 28K. It just was unfortunate that it coincided with this event. Yeah, it's just one of those one of those things. And I guess a lesson in Bitcoin 
volatility and that's another problem that they're going to need to solve you know merchants being paid in bitcoin um how do they convert that um you know into into cash um so it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with that but i guess on that point you know a major benefit to the country will be the remittance corridors um they receive about six billion dollars a year uh, in inflows back into the country from the residents El Salvador citizens working abroad and they're sending money home um, and that the people will now be able to receive their families and friends that money in Bitcoin and they'll be able to spend it without first having to convert it you know, to normal cash, which you require a bank account for and most of the people are unbanked. So I think yeah, there's going to be major benefits there um, around the remittance space, even with the volatility, it's still, it's still something people can stomach. Rob, moving away from cryptocurrencies from an El Salvador perspective, money has three uses, a store of value, unit of account, and a medium of exchange. I guess there's valid argument for Bitcoin replacing the traditional safe haven asset gold as a store of value. But as you said, there's too much volatility in the price action for it to be considered a medium of exchange or just yet for transactional use. Yeah, that's that's correct. Although I did see an interview um so the wallet that is being used in El Salvador is a white labeled solution of a company called Strike. And um, that I've seen an interview with the CEO where he said that they will customers or people will be able to actually send dollars across the network and not just Bitcoin. And he seems to think they've solved the volatility problem to a certain extent. I'm not sure, you know, how how that's going to to play out, we'll have to to see how the system actually gets implemented, and you know, to look at the evidence when people start using it. Um, but it certainly is a concern. I mean, as a merchant in a fairly you know low income country, um, you need to be able to convert those you know the the money you make to money that you can pay your bills in, and that is obviously a problem. You're still paying your rent in um, dollars. And, you know, your imports are potentially still primarily going to be dollar based. So to bring Bitcoin into the mix, there is going to still be conversions that need to take place. Yeah, it's a, it is a problem. They need infrastructure to enable that. You know, you need people to be able to send their Bitcoin to exchanges and to change it to US dollars to get it, you know, the cash out from ATMs or into their bank accounts. So. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they manage this. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, they could have done this on a voluntary basis without making it legal tender, which means you absolutely have to accept Bitcoin if it's presented to you by a customer. So they could have gone the voluntary route to allow the system to run in parallel with what they're currently doing. I mean, technically it is still in parallel, but that would have been a, probably a softer approach. Perhaps they've done it for um, a lot of the media attention. I mean, this is obviously getting a lot of attention for them as a small country. Um, so, yeah, I'm not exactly sure the reason why they've gone the, the legislated route, but, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Rob, around 20% of all Americans currently own cryptocurrency. That's a reasonably significant percentage, one out of every five. I think it would be a fair statement to call Americans the front runners when it comes to innovation and forward thinking. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but in the next five to ten years, do you see owning cryptocurrency as becoming mainstream, for lack of a better term? Absolutely. You know, I think the technology is still in its very early phases um, and the industry as a whole. There's a lot of kind of core infrastructure components that are being built out. But, you know, you yeah. We're seeing a lot of central bank digital currency development taking place all around the world. Pretty much every country is exploring this. The South African Reserve Bank is exploring this through something called Project Corker, which is what they, the mechanism they're using to explore this. And so I think a lot of countries will, you know, as a first kind of way to release um, crypto will be a central bank digital currency. And that is probably what's going to onboard the majority of people to start interacting with it and using it. And then kind of once you get, you know, your foot in the door and you learn how it works and it's not so scary anymore, then, you know, I'm sure people will start using all the other use cases. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think in the next five to 10 years, everyone will be using crypto. Lastly, Rob, the EC10 crypto basket is one of the most actively traded instruments on easy equities. Can you just provide us with some background of the constituents and the performance since inception? 
So the constituents actually changed quite a bit. The most recent one was Litecoin was removed from the index and Solana came in, which has been doing phenomenally well. Um, and that's, you know, it's really a great product from that perspective that, you know, when something's doing very well and it makes its way into the top 10, it normally continues on a bit of a run and you benefit from that. Um, and then if something's not performing so well anymore, you automatically kind of get stopped out of that position, if you will, and it's no longer part of your portfolio. Um, so, yeah, it, it does change quite a lot. And I think that speaks to kind of, you know, the early stages of the industry where the market's still trying to figure out, you know, which the best uh, blockchains are, uh, where the value lies. And you see that shifting a bit. Um and the performance, I um, don't know offhand what the performance is since inception. I know that product's been running for quite a number of years, so it's definitely in the hundreds of percent. But yeah, definitely a very nice way to get exposure to the to the sector, and it's yeah, it's um, it's been doing very well. So yeah, check it out. Well, thanks for being with us. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.